Hello and welcome to Sonnetcast, William Shakespeare's sonnets recited, revealed and relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 59. If there be nothing new but that which is, hath been before, how are our brains beguiled, which, labouring for invention, bear amiss the second burden of a former child? Oh, that record could with a backward look, in of five hundred courses of the sun, show me your image in some antique book, since mind at first in character was done, that I might see what the old world could say to this composed wonder of your frame, whether we are mended or where better they, or whether revolution be the same. Oh, sure I am the wits of former days, to subjects worse have gin admiring praise. Sonnet 59 takes us back into the realm of the proverb and the poetic commonplace, and wonders how, if the old saying holds true that there is nothing new under the sun, but everything recurs in never-ending cycles, a previous generation would have viewed and in poetry depicted the young man. Similar to Sonnet 53, it for the most part appears to present a pretty straightforward ode to the lover, but then undermines the praise it heaps upon him with a concluding couplet that can be read in two completely contradictory ways, which suggests that the conflict our poet feels for the object of his affections is far from resolved. What then does Sonnet 59 actually me. If there be nothing new but that which is, hath been before, how are our brains beguiled? If it is the case that there is nothing new under the sun, but in fact everything which is or exists today has already been or existed once or indeed several times before, then how are our brains deceived? The proverb, nothing new under the sun, goes back to ancient times and the idea of time moving in recurring cycles can be found at least as far back as Pythagoras. Most directly referenced here, though, is the Bible, with Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun, as the King James Version translates it. Beguile for us today tends to have more positive connotations than it would have had in Elizabethan English, or certainly than it has here. We think of it more as charmed, or even enchanted, but the sense here is much closer to the Middle English meaning of thoroughly deceived. Which Labouring for invention, bear amiss the second burden of a former child. Our brains, striving for novelty or for the discovery of new arguments, often mistake, bear amiss, the second iteration of something that has already once lived or been given birth to. 
Invention can here be understood both in our more general sense of something that is newly brought about or invented, but seeing Shakespeare's knowledge of the ancient art of rhetoric and in the context of a piece of rhetorical or poetic writing such as a sonnet, it is very likely also a reference to inventio, which is one of the five canons of classical rhetoric and concerns itself with the search for arguments. The Latin inventio stems from invenire, which literally means to come in and can be variously translated as to come upon, find, find out, invent, discover, devise, ascertain, acquire, get or earn, as the online etymology dictionary Etymonline tells us. This is not the first time that Shakespeare likens the writing of a poem, as it really is in both these cases, to the birth of a child. In Sonnet 32, he requested of his lover, O then vouchsafe me but this loving thought, had my friend's muse grown with this growing age, a dearer birth than this his love had brought, to marching ranks of better equipage. And indeed, Shakespeare is not alone in using this metaphor. It is fairly commonplace for the era. Oh, that record could with a backward look, e'en of five hundred courses of the sun, show me your image in some antique book, since mind at first in character was done. Oh, I wish that the annals or written records of history could show me your image in an old book from the days when we first began to write down our thoughts or memories, even as far back as five or six hundred years. We came across the living record of your memory as recently as Sonnet 55, where we noted that record implies a written document. Here, for prosody, the word is stressed on the second syllable, record. John Kerrigan, in the new Penguin edition of the sonnets, points out that hundred here likely refers to the great, or long hundred, of six score, six times twenty, which is a hundred and twenty, and so five hundred courses of the sun would amount to six hundred years, rather than five hundred, to tally with the six hundred annual cycles after which, according to ancient belief, an astrological constellation would recur. The image that is here referred to at first glance seems to suggest a picture, but the following lines really make it clear that we are talking about a description, which of course aligns itself with the overall theme of poetry that is being discussed. Even as so often is pronounced with one syllable, een, and antique, as we would say, here is stressed on the first syllable, antique, in order for the line to scan that I might see what the old world could say to this composed wonder of your frame, so that I might be able to see what the old world had to say or was able to express about this wondrously beautiful and harmoniously proportioned composition that is your form or body. 
and with this we are firmly now in the territory of language and the composition of poetry, to which this composed wonder also allude. Calling the young man's body a composition is especially complimentary and glorious, as it elevates him effectively to a work of art that is consciously constructed in just the right proportions to make it perfect. Whether we are mended or where better they, or whether revolution be the same. And to find out whether we have improved on their craft, are mended, or whether they were in fact better at describing your beauty, or whether this cycle of years that have gone by, this revolution, hasn't changed anything, and we are exactly the same, and therefore by implication as good as each other. Revolution does not here mean a violent overthrow of a government or an uprising. It means the turning of a cycle. The quarto editions were in this line by many editors is rendered as were with an apostrophe. So it's spelt W-H-E apostrophe E-R because it surely does mean weather. But the original spelling allows for a double meaning and invites us to read the question not only as whether we are better or they are, but also in what respects, where in the argument we or they may be better. And for this reason I advocate retaining this subtler and more elegant spelling where. O oh, sure I am the wits of former days, to subjects worse have gin admiring praise. O oh, I am sure that the writers or poets or more generally chroniclers of former days have given admiring praise to subjects of less worth than you. And this is another instance, though perhaps milder in its potential power, of William Shakespeare introducing a twist to the closing couplet of a sonnet that on the surface appears to set out to be a simple eulogy. Because much as we couldn't determine for certain whether sonnet 53 ended with a compliment to or a rebuke of the young man, so here the line can be read in two entirely contrasting ways, either as, oh, I am sure that even the most highly praised people of ancient times were nowhere near as worthy as you, or as, oh, I am sure that among the people praised in ancient times there were those who were even less worthy than you. Which it is we can't be sure, but the fact alone that both are possible is immensely telling. Given here, as on previous occasions, is pronounced as one syllable, gin. The philosophical observation that we may think we are discovering, or indeed inventing things for the first time, but that actually everything that we think has been thought, everything that we say has been said, and everything that we do has been done before, ushers in a reflective mood which sees William Shakespeare contemplate his existence, his age and his own mortality within the much larger picture of a world in which time ultimately consumes everything and very little of what matters to us remains. 
The poem thus precipitates a group of sonnets, sonnets 61 to 77, which are sometimes postulated to have been written marginally before the group that now comes to a provisional close, in inverted commas, sonnets 1 to 60, which is something we need to be aware of, though we may also acknowledge, as scholars generally do, that these estimated times of composition are by their very nature imprecise and largely conjectured. And, as I foreshadowed a couple of times now, we will be talking about the issue of the timing of the sonnets and therefore of their sequentiality, such as it may or may not be, in a special episode very soon after Sonnet 60. Of particular interest to us in Sonnet 59 are two things. Firstly, this noticeable shift in tone, Curiously, one might argue it strikes a signally more mature, more sedate note than certainly the couple of sonnets that immediately precede it, sonnets 57 and 58, which we found difficult not to receive with a perceptible tinge of peeve, but it is also far more emotionally distanced than, say, sonnets 52 and 53, less boastful than sonnets 54 and 55, and less pleading than sonnet 56. It seems to be taking a step back from all the turmoil of this relationship and of life generally, and be saying to the young man, to Shakespeare himself, and now to us, Beautiful people like you come into this world and the world falls in love with you and we poets who are part of this world and fall in love with you try our best to do you justice. Often we fail, sometimes we think we may succeed, the challenge remains, it has ever been thus, but at least our words may overcome the ravages of time. This latter thought is not expressed in this poem itself, but it is almost taken as read by virtue of the fact that some antique book is expected to exist, describing the beauty of former days, in which I wish I could see you described. It is almost, in sentiment if not in literal expression, a summary of where we have got to so far. But then, secondly, this closing couplet. O sure I am the wits of former days to subjects worse have given admiring praise. What is that all about? Let's recap the argument. First, Quatrain, if there is nothing new under the sun, then how wrong we are to think that we are discovering or inventing anything new, because everything we create is in fact nothing but a reiteration or reincarnation, so to speak, of something that has existed at least once before. This is the premise. Second quatrain, accepting this premise and therefore that you or your like has lived before, I wish I could take some ancient tome from centuries ago. Third quatrain, to see how the poets of these ancient times handled this wonder that is your frame, that is so perfectly composed, and in doing so find out whether we today are better at painting a picture in words of you or whether they were or whether, in fact, we are much the same. Closing couplet, I am sure that these poets have given admiring praise to subjects that are worse than you. This doesn't follow. 
nor does it make sense, not directly, and, as we have seen, it prompts us to think of a sudden inversion that says, oh, I am sure these poets of the olden days have praised people who are even worse than you. In other words, I am not alone in praising imperfection. The conclusion might make sense if we read the third quatrain differently and interpreted it as referring not to the depiction in writing of the subject at hand, but to the subject itself. The third and fourth line of the third quatrain could just about also be read as saying whether we have better, more beautiful, more perfectly composed wonders to write about than they did, or whether theirs were in these senses better, or whether we have come full circle, as it were, and our generation is talking about a level of perfection that is just the same as theirs. With this reading, the closing couplet becomes refreshingly straightforward. Oh, I am sure that whomever these ancient poets were praising was not as amazing as you are. The problem with this reading is that we have to invent it. The poem itself does not conduct that switch for us. It talks about the composed wonder of your frame and appears to plainly not compare a former similar version or quasi-equivalent of your frame to you today, but a former description of your frame as we see it today to our, specifically my, description today. Now, it is entirely possible that Shakespeare, of whom we know and have established several times by now, that he is not overly concerned with the strictures of logic and quite occasionally simply takes matters as read, wants us to make this jump for him and that for him it is clear that when he talks of subjects worse, he obviously means subjects who simply had no chance of being as exquisitely composed as his subject, the young man. Equally possible, though, is that Shakespeare, of whom we also know that he loves multiple layers of meaning and wordplay and puns and hidden clues, wants us to believe that that's what he wants us to do, but is actually using this conclusion to his sonnet to once again relay the deep ambiguity he feels about his lover. It is, after all, an ambiguity that has made itself felt on many occasions, and for as long as we have reason to believe that we are talking about the same young man, we know with some certainty that he is not unimpeachable. How we want to read this last couple of lines is and remains most likely forever now up to us. It is, as I am doing this podcast, in decimal terms, just about 430 revolutions of the sun since Shakespeare wrote this sonnet, and in all likelihood many of the sonnets that surround it and that relate to us this composed wonder of the young man's frame. And it is perhaps interesting that the sonnet this so instantly reminds us of, Sonnet 53, names Adonis and Helen, the two classical ideals of beauty, whom the wits of former days have spent a great deal of ink on eulogising. 
It is tempting to think, and a lovely thought it is too, that Shakespeare views his young lover as even more perfect than them. And who knows, maybe if Shakespeare had named his young lover, he too would now be an icon of beauty that we refer to and recognise, and whose descriptions in the past we can compare to contemporary ones. But here the veil of mystery envelops our poet's lover, and we may never know for certain whom we are hearing of, or how exactly we should imagine them. And the reality is that Shakespeare himself, throughout the series so far, has given us remarkably few clues. Much as he has praised the young man, he has given us hardly any description. A woman's face hast thou, he told him back in Sonnet 20, having spoken of the beauty of your eyes in Sonnet 17. In Sonnet 10 he told him that his presence is gracious and kind, and in Sonnet 3 we learnt that he looks like his mother. We know he is young, we know he is rich, we know he is fickle, we know he is unfaithful, and we know they have been together and they have been apart and together again, but we really have to form our own image of him, certainly for as long as we keep our minds open as to who he is and don't resort to any portraits of any historical figures who have actually lived in the time and who may or may not be the young man. These poems yield us some clues, but none of them actually describes him. None of them does what this sonnet wishes an antique book had done so Shakespeare could compare them. The counterpart of which Shakespeare seems to speak in his present does not exist any more than the former birth he wishes he could consult. And so perhaps here once again, as at least once before, we may have to accept that Shakespeare, be it consciously so or no, gives us two valid readings in one go, which both are true. Since beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it may well be that as far as Shakespeare is concerned, nobody has ever been as beautiful as the young man, but it is also the case that this perfect creature comes with his own pronounced character flaws, and this fact too, that beauty is not necessarily paired with an upright personality of unmatched integrity, has probably ever been thus. Nothing new, indeed, then, under the sun. As ever, the transcript of this podcast, together with all the sonnets we've discussed so far, is at sonnetcast.com, where there is also a contact form for those of you who want to get in touch, and a donate button for those of you who want to contribute to this undertaking. And in any case, I do hope you will join me again here on Sonnetcast as we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare.